Hello, my name is Kyle Kamarowski. The scripture reading today comes from the Old Testament book of Genesis. I'll be reading from chapter 27, verses 30 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and almost before Jacob had left his father, Esau returned to him from his hunt. Esau prepared a delicious meal and brought it to his father. Then he said, sit up, my father, and eat my wild game so you can come give me your blessing. But Isaac asked him, who are you? Esau replied, it is your son, your firstborn son, Esau. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably and said, then who just served me wild game? I have already eaten it, and I have blessed him just, as, just before you came. And yes, that blessing must stand. When Esau heard this, heard his, father, his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he begged. But Isaac said, your brother was here. He tricked me. He has taken away your blessing. Esau exclaimed, no wonder his name is Jacob, for now he has cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn, now he has stolen my blessing. Oh, haven't you saved even one blessing for me? Isaac said to Esau, I have made Jacob your master and declared that all of his brothers will be his servants. I have granted him an abundance of grain and wine. What is left for me to give to you, my son? Esau pleaded, but do, but do you only have one blessing? Oh, my father, bless me too. Then Esau broke down. Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Well, when I was a kid, I don't remember what the circumstance was, like what the occasion was, but my dad brought me in on his plan to give my mom a gift, and we were going to give her one of these waffle makers, you know, where you can make them yourself, and you put the batter in there and plug it in, and it makes waffles. She had wanted one, and so my dad brought me in on that plan, and we got the waffle maker, and I had seen it, and I think we even wrapped it together and so forth. And I don't know what got into my mind. I don't know if it was just I felt this surge of power because I had secret knowledge or if I just couldn't get, keep the secret to myself. But I remember asking my mom before we gave her the gift, like before the occasion even came to give the gift, I even said like, hey, do you want a clue as to what gift we're giving you? You know, and my mom, I think, I mean, I don't know how she responded, but she must have said not really is how I would have responded. And I said, we're getting you a wah, wah, waffle maker. <laughs> And promptly, my parents scolded me for blowing the secret, for totally ruining the gift. And, and certainly then, when my mom actually received the gift, I had to relive my shame all over again, because now she knows what she's getting, you know? And so my dad made this plan to give my mom a waffle maker. Indeed, that plan came to fruition, but it came to fruition under all the wrong circumstances. I mean, between planning to give the waffle maker to her and giving the waffle maker to her, I, I blew the plan up. I spoiled the secret. I don't know if it was my own selfish conniving or feeling like, hey, I know this and mom doesn't or whatever. But I, I, we gave her the waffle maker. It came to fruition, but under all the wrong circumstances. And today what we see when we look at the story of Jacob is we see God making a plan. His plan plays itself out, but his plan plays itself out under all the wrong circumstances. The right thing is happening according to God's plan, but it's happening according to all of the wrong circumstances. Last week, we talked about the near sacrifice of Isaac, and thankfully, because it was a near sacrifice and not a real sacrifice, Isaac grew old, and as he grew old, he begged the Lord for children, 
And he had two boys, Esau and Jacob. And before Esau and Jacob were even born, they were already warring or fighting in the womb, which was an indicator of what would come of these two sons of Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Let's look at Genesis 25, verses 21 to 23. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? Rebekah asked. And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And so already, even before these boys are born, in verse 23, we get God's plan. He says, your older son will serve your younger son. And this is against the grain of what would have been expected culturally, because culturally in the the day, they would have expected the older son to have a special status. And we'll talk more in a bit about what that special status entailed for the firstborn son. But this is backwards according to cultural expectation. Usually it was the firstborn who received a special status from the Lord. But here, God's plan, before these boys are even born, is for the younger to be served by the older. But we see this second-place special status narrative at work in Genesis over and over again. It's almost as if God likes this upside-down, unexpected way of doing things where the second-born carries a special status, which, again, would have been against the cultural grain of that day. But it's almost like God likes this second-place status thing. I mean... You look at creation, animals are created before humans are created, but yet it's the humans that rule over the animals. Then you look at Cain and Abel, and Cain is the firstborn, Abel is the secondborn, but the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifice over and above Cain's sacrifice. Some scholars believe that Abraham was not the firstborn son of Terah, and the Bible doesn't say And if that's the case, though, then Abraham, not being the firstborn son, would have been the one to carry the promise. So again, special status granted not to the firstborn. Abraham has two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is the firstborn. But who carries the promise? Isaac, the secondborn, carries the promise. And then Isaac has Esau and Jacob. Jacob ends up having special status over Esau. But then Jacob has Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, when Joseph is a a dad, and has his own children. He presents his boys to his dad, Isaac. And Isaac is going to bless Joseph's boys, and he crosses his arms over to bless the younger son, Ephraim. So it's almost in Genesis alone that God loves this pattern of blessing the secondborn. Look at Genesis 25, 26, and we're going to get a window into who this secondborn son is. Then the, older tw- or sorry, then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60, year o- 60 years old when the twins were born. And so before they're born, we're given a window into God's plan. He says, the older will serve the younger. And then when they're born, we get a window, we get an indicator of who this younger son will be. And he comes out grasping the heel of his older brother Esau, and they name that younger brother Jacob, why? Well, there's a note in the NLT Bible on verse 26 which says, Jacob sounds like the Hebrew words for both heel, because he's grasping the heel, but then also deceiver. So we're given a window into the fact that this boy will be a deceiver. Now, I've known Jacobs in my day, and even weirder, 
I've known Jacobs that come from Christian families. And I kind of look at the Christian families and say, why would you name your kid Jacob based off the biblical text and what you know about Jacob? When I was a kid growing up in Hingham Reformed Church, at one point when we became a certain age, we received this plaque that had our names on it. And then the plaque would say what our names meant. And so can you imagine us growing up in Hingham Reformed Church receiving this name plaque? Oh, what's yours say, Bill? Oh, my actual name is William, and it means bold protector. What's yours say, Jacob? Oh, mine says heel grabbing trickster. You know, it's like, why would you name your kid this? Anyway, people just must like the name. But we're given a window into who this boy will be. And these are polar opposites. Esau, as the older brother, is an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He's hairy. He's a burly man. Jacob is more domesticated. He likes the indoors. He likes to cook. He likes to do things around the house or around the tent for that matter. Straw poll here. Who likes the outdoors better? Not me. Who likes the outdoors better? Raise your hand. Whoa, very few. Who likes the indoors better? Okay, outdoors. I'm going to give you another chance because there's a few of you coming in. Outdoors? Outdoors? Okay, that's more even. Now, indoors? Indoors? Yeah, I like my climate-controlled, clean <laughs> environment. So I, I, yeah, Jacob is not the trickery part, but the indoors part. Of it. Yeah, he's my boy. So we're told that Jacob comes out grasping the heel of Esau. It's already an indicator of who this boy will be. And Genesis wastes no time showing us who this boy will be because already the very next event in the biblical text is this encounter between Jacob and Esau. Esau comes in from the field. He's tired. He's famished. He's hungry. And Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright. Let's look at how this goes down. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, betrayed me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. And so Esau trades in his birthright, his rights as the firstborn son, in return for some of Jacob's stew. Now we said we would come to what the Holman Bible Dictionary says about what the birthright is. The birthright are special privileges that belong to the firstborn male child in a family. Prominent among those privileges was a double portion of the estate as an inheritance. For instance, if a man had two sons, his estate would be divided into three portions, and the older son would receive two portions. So in Isaac's case, Esau, being the firstborn son, would have received 66% of the estate, and Jacob, being the younger son, would have received 33% of the estate. Two sons, three portions, older son gets the double portion. But we see Jacob envying Esau's status as the firstborn son and envying it to the point that he actually swindles Esau out of his rights as the firstborn son, trading them away for some of the stew that Jacob has to offer. That's the first glimpse into the trickery that we get out of Jacob. And then two chapters later, we get another glimpse into this trickery. Isaac is old. He's practically blind at this point, And he knows because he's old that it's time for him to officially pronounce the blessing, the inheritance upon his boys. And Rebecca gets wind of this plan Isaac's wife figures out that Isaac's planning to officially pass on the blessing, the birthright to Esau. And so Rebekah grabs Jacob. They make a meal according to the custom of the day so that Jacob can bring a meal to his dad. They disguise Jacob using donkey skin so that Jacob's skin will feel hairy like Esau's. 
Jacob steals Esau's clothes, wears some of those so he'll smell like Esau, so he'll smell like the outside. And they bring this meal to Isaac. And Jacob brings it in to his dad. You can kind of see, I like in this picture here, how Rebecca's kind of hiding in the shadows here because she's put Jacob up to this. And so Jacob goes in, and Isaac immediately knows something up, something's up, because he's like, is this really Esau? I think you can hear by the voice that this isn't Esau. And Isaac insists upon touching Jacob because, again, he's almost blind at this point. And, and once Isaac smells Esau's clothes, and once Isaac touches the donkey skin on Jacob, Isaac is convinced that this indeed is Esau. And so Isaac pronounces the blessing upon Jacob. And then the Bible tells us that not long after Esau came back from hunting the meal, Jacob got help from his mom. His mom helped him make the meal. It took Esau longer because he had to go out and hunt the meal. He makes the meal. Esau brings the meal to his dad, and his dad is stymied and says, well, I just blessed somebody. Who did I just bless? And it's in that moment that both Esau and Isaac realize that Jacob has stolen the birthright. Let's look at our scripture reading today. Let's look at Genesis 27, 30 to 38. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and almost before Jacob had left his brother, Esau returned from his hunt. Esau prepared a delicious meal and brought it to his father. Then Esau said, sit up, my father, and eat my wild game so you can give me your blessing. But Isaac asked him, who are you? Esau replied, it's your firstborn son, Esau. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably and said, then who just served me wild game? I've already eaten it, and I blessed him just before you came. And yes, that blessing must stand. When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he begged. But Isaac said, your brother was here, and he tricked me. He has taken away your blessing. Esau begs his dad, bless me too, dad. Please, there's got to be a blessing. And Isaac responds and says, what is left for me to give you, my son, in verse 37? Now, you ever wonder like I did, why couldn't he just bless both? He just as easily spoke a blessing over Jacob. Why couldn't he just as easily speak a blessing over Esau? Esau even begs, bless me too, dad. And he says, no, there's nothing left to give you. And the blessing that I gave Jacob must stand. Why can't he just bless both? Because in that culture, the blessing was binding. I mean, in our culture, we sign our names on contracts, and that's binding. And someone could easily look at us and say, well, all you did was sign your name on a piece of paper. What does that mean? It's like, well, that's our way of showing that we agree to this, that this word is binding. And back in their day, the blessing was binding. Once he spoke it, it could not be rescinded. Here's what scholar John Walton says. He says, the power of the spoken word was such that it could not be unsaid. It was binding. And then another scholar, Victor Hamilton, adds, there was probably no socially acceptable legal procedure for rescinding a paternal blessing. Once it was spoken, it was binding. That's why he couldn't bless both. And so before the boys are born, we get a glimpse into God's plan. The older son will serve the younger son. And here, at verse 37, we see that plan come to fruition when Isaac says, I have made Jacob your master. Before birth, the older will serve the younger. And then two chapters later, we see the plan playing itself out when Isaac blesses Jacob. Now, we're a Presbyterian church, which means that we're Reformed in theology, and, 
And if you want to go back and find out what Reformed theology is, I did a whole series on this about a year ago that you can listen to. But if I were to boil down what it means to be Reformed in theology, I would boil it down to three words. Sovereignty of God. That's what we believe. Above all else, we are making much of the fact that God is in charge, that God reigns, that God is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, we might say that what God plans happens. Because he's God, when he puts a plan in place, that plan is going to happen. Nobody and nothing can get in the way of those plans. What he plans happens. Nothing will frustrate the plans of the Lord. Here's what Job says in 42.2. He says, I know that you, meaning God, can do anything. And no one can stop you. Nobody can stop our God. When he puts a plan in place, that plan is sure to come to fruition. That plan is sure to play itself out. So what God plans happens. And we see that here with the Jacob and Esau story. Before birth, the plan is the older will serve the younger. And then two chapters later, we see Isaac blessing Jacob. What God plans happens. So if that's the case, the question for us becomes then is what will be our role in that plan. What God plans happens, and if that's the case then, then what's our role in that plan? If what God plans will play itself out, then what's our role in his plan? Jacob's role was trickery, defrauding, manipulation, conniving, swindling, what God plans happens. What will be our role in that plan? We see Jacob taking matters into his own hands and doing everything he can to manipulate the situation for his own gain. What will be our role in God's plan? What God plans happens. What will be our role in that plan? This is hard to talk about. But the plan is, the Bible tells us, that someday every single human being that has ever lived on this earth will stand before the Lord in a final judgment. And that those who claim Jesus as king and their Lord and Savior will be saved. And that those who rejected Jesus as king and Lord and Savior will be cast into hell. That's what the Bible tells us. That's the plan for there to be a final judgment. So knowing that that's the plan, knowing that that's coming for each and every one of us, what were, will our role be in that plan? Will we believe? Will we serve the king of kings and lord of lords? Or will we serve ourselves? Or will we reject his lordship? Or will we reject Yahweh's son? What will our role be in that plan? The good news is that you have this life now. It's not too late to believe. When you die, it's too late. But you have this life now. It's never too late to say, Jesus, I've been living for myself. I haven't been living for you. I want to live for you. And guess what? You can even ask him at that point. You can even put living for him on him and say, I can't live for you. I'm too sinful. Help me live for you. The Bible shows us people who say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So if you have trouble with belief, you can even ask him, Jesus, I want to believe in you. Help me with my unbelief. The plan is for a judgment someday. So what's our role in that plan? I've been reading 1 Corinthians in my own time with the Lord, and oh, it's just amazing. 
This book is just, I mean, I've, I'm Greg Johnsoning my Bible like crazy. Every page is highlighted, marked up. Like, I'm like, why didn't I get a journaling Bible? Not enough room to write in these margins, you know? It's just awesome. But I read something this week that's like, ah, it pricks me. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. And I'm just going to say, he's talking about what are you building with your life. Okay, here's what Paul says. Anyone who, bides on that found, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. He's saying you can use any materials when you're building with your life. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will, will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Paul's asking, what are you building with your life, Corinthian Christians? He's talking to believers because he's saying, this is a group that will be saved. This is a group that believes in Jesus. So this is a group that will be saved. But Christians who believe, what are you building with your life? Because if you believe, someday what you have built with your life will be presented before the Lord. And the Lord's going to test that building. He's going to place a value judgment upon that building. And if the Lord values your structure, if the Lord values what you built, it's going to stand. But if the Lord doesn't value what you built, that structure is going to burn to the ground. And you will still be saved. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that my salvation belongs to you and not to me and that you are the one who conquered death. So you will be saved. Praise the Lord. However, the structure of your life has been burned down. And you will be saved like someone who escaped a fire. You're going to smell like smoke walking into heaven. You're going to be, you're going to have singe marks on the hairs of your arm as you walk into heaven. Praise the Lord, you made it, but whew, man, that structure was a piece of junk. That was your life that just burned down there. Whoop, a welcome. That bothers me. I believe. But what am I building with this believing life? God's going to test that structure someday. And is it going to burn down? Is my entire life's work just going to burn down? Or is it going to stand and am I going to receive a reward? It's kind of like, am I going to walk through the front door of my father's house or am I going to have to climb in through a window? You know, like you've got to take a shower first because you smell like smoke before you come to the banquet. Like, what am I building with my life? Does God value what I value? Because if, if my values and God's values don't match then I'm probably building something that God doesn't value. Oh, I hope I'm using my life to build a structure that God values. That's the plan. The plan is for the structure to be tested. So what's my role in that plan? Am I building a structure that God values, or am I building a structure that I value and that is eventually just going to burn to the ground? What's our role in God's plan? Morgan will tell you, that I've been worrying a lot lately. It's real. It's a real confession. I've been worrying like crazy. And what I'm learning about worrying is that it does no good. In fact, it makes things worse. And it's exhausting, not only for me, but for my wife, who has to deal with me and my worry. And I should know better. 
I should know that worry is exhausting. Because in 2010, when I was a youth pastor, I took a mission trip to St. Louis with our students, and I'm so sad she's not here that she can be embarrassed by it. But this photo can both embarrass both Amanda Sogstad and myself, because Amanda was one of my students on, the, on that trip to St. Louis. And so we got paired with this other church, because they have lots of churches at the mission site. And, and, and the leader of this other group that we were paired with was a worrier. And it was just totally exhausting. I mean, we were in a kitchen making food. And this guy is running around, oh, be careful with that knife. Be careful with the sanitization. Oh, be careful with those gloves. Oh, be careful with that oven. Oh, make sure you got a hot pad. Oh, make sure. And I'm just like, ah, it's a kitchen, dude. Kids play with make-believe things and plastic items. Now we just got real items. They've already been prepared for this in their childhood. Like, settle down. If someone cuts themselves, we'll deal with it. But I don't see anybody using a knife dangerously. It's an oven. We'll put hot pads on it. Just relax. But every little thing, be careful with that. Be careful. It was just exhausting. It was like I had to distance myself from this other leader because he was just driving me absolutely nuts. So in one moment, he's worrying about every little thing in the kitchen. It's totally exhausting. Then we're riding in his van, 15-passenger van. You know how tippy those things are. We're driving through the ghetto of St. Louis, and we went to this residential street, and the, the locals had opened up a fire hydrant. So this fire hydrant's just spraying into the street. And you know what type of pressure those fire hydrants have. And this leader who's driving the, the van, this worrier, he says, oh, they opened up a fire hydrant. So he proceeds to drive our van through the hydrant, and the pressure of the water is pushing against the side of the van. We can feel the van tipping. I'm looking at my kids. I'm like, we're going to tip over. And we get out of that water, and the van kind of, you know, settles itself. And I'm like, one moment you're worried about every little thing in the kitchen, and the next moment you put us in real danger by driving through a fire hydrant? Like, you're driving me nuts, man. You're driving me nuts. But worry is exhausting. It's exhausting, and it does no good. In fact, it harms, and I think I'm learning why worry is a sin. You know, because sometimes it's kind of like, why is worry a sin? It's like, I'm not murdering anybody. Like, this isn't like, you know, cheating on my spouse or anything like that. Like, why is worry a sin? And I think I know why it's a sin. I think I know why worry is a sin because it says, I don't trust you with your plan, God. Worry says, God's not in charge. God doesn't reign. He doesn't have the future in place. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. And because he's not reigning, because he's not on the throne, now i got to do something about it. Now i got to make something happen. Now i got to watch out for me. Worry denies that God is sovereign. That's why it's a sin. What God plans will happen. So what are we going to do within that plan? Are we going to worry and deny that God is sovereign? Or are we going to trust? Because Jacob did not trust. Jacob made it happen. The plan had been announced from before they were born. But Jacob made it happen. Through manipulation, through trickery, through conniving. If you remember nothing else from today's sermon, it all boils down to this. What God plans happens... And so what's our role in that plan? What God plans happens. What's our role 
in that plan. Everything boils down to this. Look at Romans 8.29. It says, for God knew his people in advance. Sounds like a plan. And he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Look at that. You got God's planning before the world began to know his people. And then he sends his son to become like his people. And he sends his son to become like his people so that he can save his people. This is the plan. Even before time began. And Jesus becomes like us. So Paul is saying because Jesus became like us, because he became human, he's like our brother. We are his siblings. Those who are in him, those who believe in him, are his siblings. And because Jesus is the one who saves us, because he went through death and rose to new life, he is the firstborn brother to save many brothers and sisters. And so isn't it interesting then, and wouldn't it make perfect sense, that a God who loves to do stuff with the secondborn would use his firstborn, Jesus, to save his secondborn, his people. Jesus' brothers and sisters. Do you see the pattern all over again? God's firstborn son it goes through death and rises into new life in order to save God's secondborn brothers and sisters, those who are in him, those who believe in him. And today we get to come to his table and lift our cups and toast to Jesus, our firstborn brother who went through death and rose to new life so that we can be saved and so that one day we can meet our brother.